Many an ape man must have snatched up a stone wherewith to hit somebody, either another man or other animal, on the head, without any reflection upon the course of nature beyond the next few minutes. Also, he might notice some stones are better than others as lethal weapons, and he might even help them out by chipping them. He is then approaching civilization. But he has crossed the Great Divide when he puts seeds into a patch of earth and waits for a season. In the main, practice precedes thought, and thought is mainly concerned with the justification or the modification of a pre-existing situation. And also, the masses of mankind are always liable to reach some stable level of custom and to halt progress there. Uh, that quote comes to you from uh, the collection of essays, Adventures of Ideas, mm. by Alfred North Whitehead. Oh, Jesus. Who somehow we have made it this deep into our catalog without addressing directly. He's come up a few times. Sure. And we're still going to mostly avoid him tonight because he's too hard. Mm. It's too much. Someday damn it, we'll, Alfie, we'll Alfie, get Alfie, into Alfie, process Alfie. and reality and do the philosophy of organism. But we'll need to do like a Doddler's retreat for that one. Ooh, I wonder how many <laughs> tickets we could sell. Well, I know Knox would show up. Would you buy a ticket, Knox? Oh, <laughs> it's little tail. His little nub and wags. And when I say that, yes, it does. Come on, you. I'm Harland Desultory C. Grant. I am Ryan the Silkworm McKenna. And this is the Doddler's Philosophy Podcast of Indeterminate Duration. Tick, tick, tick. (laughs) And we're going to talk about an idea or a, a, you know, is this an idea? A a Uh, conceptual framework, a habit of thought. Framework, yeah, I like that. That we call laws of nature Mm. tonight. And what that could possibly mean. And then if we think there are some. The legalities of the natural. Les legalités du naturel. So basically, in this book, Whitehead's doing a lot of history and prehistorical speculation about sort of the development of intellect in human beings. And one of his flowery paragraphs about 
where the threshold is that we switch from being a mere animal to an animal plus, <laughs> a little bit like we talked about last week. A little. Is when we start noticing patterns, when we start positing laws. He writes, The notion of law, that is to say, some measure of regularity or of persistence or of recurrence, is an essential element in the urge toward technology, methodology, scholarship, and speculation. Apart from a certain smoothness in the nature of things, there can be no knowledge, no useful method, no intelligent purpose. Which I take to be the pretty fundamental claim that whatever's going on around here, it's not pure chaotic randomness. There is at least some measure of pattern, of predictability, of stability, recurrence. <clears throat> and I think that's a pretty acceptable premise. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I would, no, I, I would definitely uh, agree with that. I mean, it's obviously not a uh, hard and fast absolute but is definitely saying <laughs> it's not all craziness. We're at the edge of chaos, not totally in it. Ooh, yeah. We should do that one too, coming up, too. <laughs> Another quote. The difficulty in all such notions of supreme generality is that conscious attention is not naturally directed to any factor which is a quote-unquote matter of course in experience. Attention is riveted on news. We, uh, in another book, he talks about the, an elephant is an elephant because when one is not present, you don't notice it. And then when something changes, there is, or what I, I was butchered, edit that out. <laughs> but yeah, we don't notice things that don't change because of the type of primate we are. We notice when our environment shifts in some way we consider relevant. In other words, news, when news happens. And as that applies to natural law, I think, he's pointing out how musing about these really high-level abstractions is difficult, because should there be laws of nature, probably those will most of the time during the course of our daily lives go unnoticed. It's because they're always the same. When's there going to be news about the speed of light changing, Rupert Sheldrake? Reminding me of a future episode. <laughs> that, that, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, in that list of institutions that he says the notion of law provides for, he talks about speculation and scholarship. And... For the, his definitions of those are as follows. Speculation by entertaining alternative theories is superficially skeptical, disturbing to established modes of prejudice, but it obtains its urge from a deep, ultimate faith that through and through the nature of things is penetrable by reason. And then on the other hand, you have scholarship, which for Whitehead is strict attention to 
accepted methodologies. Scholarship is superficially conservative of belief, but its tone of mind leads toward a fundamental negation. For scholars, the reasonable topics in the world are penned in isolated regions, this subject matter or that. So that's sort of, scholarship is like specialization, I think, okay. and speculation is like <clears throat> Whiteheadian metaphysics, or what it's developing some sort of scheme and then attempting to arrange your empirical observations within that scheme, testing out how it works, modifying or not, and then adopting or not the system. He draws a distinction in the chapter Laws of Nature from Adventures of Ideas between an Augustinian or a Platonic attitude toward ideas, the way we hold ideas. Uh, he quotes Plato from the Timaeus as saying, We must be well content if we can provide an account not less likely than another's. We must remember that I who speak and you who are my audience are but men and should be satisfied to ask for no more than a likely story. And that, I think, well summarizes the attitude of the Dawdler's podcast. Yes. We pursue likely stories over certainties. And then he opposes that to Augustine, who was the you know, religious scholar who had a lot of dogmas. And then he's saying that there's different ways that we can hold on to ideas. And I think that's the backdrop I wanted to lay out before going into a taxonomy that he develops in here between four different types or accounts of natural laws. And I know how much my co-host loves these little things. We'll see whether or not this one works and if it sticks and if we refer to it in future episodes. Ooh, okay. But yes. at least we're going to lay out four different types of laws and see what we think about them. Delicious. Number one. He calls the doctrine of law as imminent. So what's this? Quote, the order of nature expresses the characters of real things which jointly compose the existences to be found in nature. In other words, some partial identity of pattern in the various characters of natural things issues in some partial identity in the pattern in mutual relations. Identities of pattern in the relations are the laws of nature. And that one, I think is going to be, well, I mean, in Whitehead's metaphysics, you have a little bit of most of these four, but that one sounds really Whiteheadian to me. When he gets into his account of the little, well, his monads, basically, are these things that are whose nature is determined by the way they relate to the rest of the objects in their environment. And so for this law as imminent, he's saying there's going to be some interplay between the objects and their patterns of relationships. And then as those two condition one another, 
patterns that fall out of that interaction then become the laws of nature. I don't know if this is a fair example, but maybe human perception of color is something along these lines that we, that our nervous system and these regularities in the differences of wavelengths of information in our environments kind of across our evolutionary lineage play off against one another. If it happens to work, that seeing redness of apples helps us feed ourselves efficiently and not get poisoned too often, then the human body is going to develop a more acute facility to detect this differential wavelength thing. But then that might change the prevalence of plants on in the ecosystem as we farm them or as we whatever, and that these things play off against one another. And out of these interactions, develop patterns, and that would be a law of nature as imminent. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I mean, I just think about, like, tuning, like, the laws of nature. Do they just happen to be these stable sets of objects and relations, you know, and the patterns that they form? Or is it, you know, just more accident that they come to rest at that spot you know what i mean like so i so that's all like in my head i'm like oh crap what i I gotta put that aside and then say something like to me that sounds like you're tuning a guitar you know like you're tuning the 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 strings and they have a particular relationship and forget about the idea of harmony or liking the way that they sound together or whatever the fuck maybe there are many tunings out there that you could grab or whatever you just use the standard one you're just going to tune it and over time you know you know everything kind of falls into step and it becomes more or less a pattern that then can be you know worked on you know and you can create the g chord and the c chord and all that kind of stuff and you can work it out that's kind of what i'm thinking when i'm hearing this whiteheadian approach to laws of nature mhm the legalities of the natural <laughs> Right. And Do you I, object? <laughs> no, in fact, what, one of the things you said near the beginning of that turn reminded me of my next quote. Because, nice. yes, in this interpretation of laws, the laws themselves can change as the system evolves. He writes, Since the laws of nature depend on the individual characters of the things constituting nature, and as the things themselves change, correspondingly, the laws will change. The modern evolutionary view of the physical universe should conceive of the laws of nature as evolving. Again, uh, presaging some sheldrake, I think. Yeah, sure. Yes. Um, I, it, it makes me think of a lot of things, and I'm not sure... You know, like last time, you didn't want to like get bogged down... Because I get it, you know, we were attempting a short the last time. It didn't turn out that way. <laughs> but I don't want to bog us down on too many different paths. I don't want to say anything that's, like, seemingly irrelevant or shruggable, where you're like, sure, that sounds good. <laughs> well, all right, just take a note then, I guess. And I'll rattle through the other three, and then we can Yeah, yeah, because you, you have a big old uh, window pane I like to see through, and, uh, you know, it's my, it's my jam. Nice. All right, so that's type one. Law is imminent. 
Type two is called the doctrine of imposed law, and this is kind of early Newton and Descartes. And in this one, we've got a big fat God in there. Thank you very much. I'm fatter. Right, because someone has to impose the law on it. Yeah. The doctrine of imposed law adopts an alternative metaphysics of external relations between the existences, which are the ultimate constituents of nature, the character of each ultimate thing conceived as its own private qualification. The ultimate truth is it requires nothing but itself in order to exist. So this is one where we've got, you know, democracy and atoms or whatever. Mm -hmm. there's, there's some things. The necessity of entering into relationships with other ultimate constituents of nature, the imposed behavior patterns here would be the laws of nature. He writes that this is a certain type of deism, and that the way it has developed in our intellectual history requires a capital G God for the imposition of the principles. And then, you know, talks a little bit about how Newton and Descartes did it, and how that they were saying... The establishment and maintenance of these patterned relationships between the things are the way they are because there's a big white-bearded daddy in the sky that made it so. Mm. A similar one, but that came subsequently in the development of what we call science on Earth, because already that one's, you know, closer. The first one was kind of the out there whitehead thing. Oh, the laws themselves can evolve and they're imminent in the objects which themselves are constituted by their relations. And now then he backs off to do ones that are more familiar and quote unquote scientific. So the next one gets rid of the God part but keeps most of the rest. And this one is called Law as Description. The positive doctrine of law here is that a law of nature is an observed persistence of pattern in the observed succession of natural things. Law is then merely description. This presupposes that we have a direct acquaintance with the succession of things, acquaintance being cumulative and comparative. The laws of nature here are nothing else than the observed identities of pattern persisting through a series of comparative observations. And this one is basically the Baconian picture. The, our job is just to look. Just observe, <laughs> write down what you see, and if you see it happen over and over and over again, then you can posit a descriptive law. That, oh, that's how it looks like that's it works around here. Yeah. And then he says that developed into the positivism picture the right. trajectory between Bacon and positivism. Type number four. Type number four Knox. is uh, the laws of nature as conventional interpretation, in which we elaborate a system of ideas in detachment from any direct detailed observation of a matter of fact. And this one is in general, mathematics, or the speculative philosophy that Whitehead talks about, that first you just develop your system of generalities, then you attempt to interpret your experience through that lens, and if it allows you to do what you want to do, then you entrench it. You keep it, you, and then you elaborate upon it. And I think that's 
his interpretation of the development of what we call mathematics, right? Well, that we, also sounds almost like what many people might feel in, like calling technology, you know, or, you know, whatever it is that we engineer, we kind of like it, it works, and then we find a way to, you know, use it in the way that we can make more stuff or whatever. We build upon that. We elaborate on the technologies. Yeah, sure. It makes <clears throat> sense. I mean, I personally view math as a technology. Sure. Yeah, you could view it as a technology. But just, you know, if somehow we were doing separate things, then they would be different. But obviously, whatever. I like whatever. it. I like it. So that's his four different types of accounts of laws of nature and his definition of them to refer to it once more his definition of the notion of laws of nature are some measure of regularity persistence or recurrence discovered or invented by human beings when attempting to engage with their environments so did okay now did you have any questions comments whatever or should what should we do next Well I mean the first one the whiteheadian imminent structure to the laws of nature and how they can continue to evolve and all that That one struck me um just <clears throat> relating back to things I have learned uh you know just when I think about uh the the various views that people took uh, about evolution, for instance, you know, and and um, if you look at the if you look at the whole fossil record business, the fossil records suggested to people that the on one level they could see that it didn't look like you know like at an individual taxon that things changed a whole lot, so there was a lot of stability there. And yet, um, the overall picture from the fossil record was that things clearly were changing from, you know, older sediments with presumably older fossils uh, to the modern day faunas today. So anyway, um, the overall picture that I see is this one where like, you know, you have Darwinism and everything's a... gradual incremental changes and it's always kind of moving and then there's this other view which is that things are relatively stable and um but every once in a while they'll they'll shift they'll move or whatever and so um you know it, it, i guess the I, i'm trying to figure out whether or not whitehead is trying to say something along the lines with his with his type one uh, uh, law of laws of nature is that, you know, is it kind of punctuated, you know, equilibria type thing, you know, where, you know, it's not to say that things are uh, not changing. It's just that they're not changing in a kind of direction, you know, they're just sort of moving around and, but they sort of hug a specific stable point or whatever. Um, 
Anyway, I just was thinking about those things while my dog goes apeshit upstairs because she could hear knocks go up the stairs, and then she was like, motherfucker, I gotta have me some knocks. I don't... Uh, of course, anachronistically, Whitehead wouldn't know about punctuated equilibria. I don't know what he would say about whether it was gradualist or periods of stasis or whatever, or if that would matter. I think my interpretation of what he's saying with this law, imminent laws, it could go either way. That's just in the details. Right? Just with what he was saying, it could be either or an, or not, or neither. It could be some third... Well, if it's constantly changing, then it's hard to know, well, to what degree is it changing and how do we know that it's changing in any particular direction? So at least for whatever period of time has been going on, I, I think that our understanding, our characterization of things has maybe changed, but somehow it's like we've preserved the notion that these things aren't changing and that we are kind of moving around them somehow, trying to get a better view. So you go from, you know, Newton to Einstein or whatever, you know, and you've, you've maybe changed how you characterize it, but essentially you're still saying, okay, well, what we're calling the moon or, or the solar system, whatever, it hasn't itself necessarily changed. We're changing how we understand its relations and all that kind of stuff or whatever. And so then in that sense, you know, when you get to something like the speed of light, that's hung on for for a while is it itself changing or is that just merely only ever a postulate you know what i mean like so if we were to actually do any kind of measurement of such a thing which we do um has that ever changed and if it if it has i don't know i would say that if quote unquote the laws of nature were always changing then it would be hard to call them laws in the sense that the analogy works for us in our you know, human affairs. You know what I mean? Like, <clears throat> it isn't to say that the laws don't change. Yes, I know. Poor Louisa. Um, I don't know if people can hear it. Probably through your mic, but whatever. Uh, it isn't to say that the laws themselves won't change. It's just that are they constantly in flux? You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if they necessarily are. Um, and they might be stable in some areas and in flux in others. I don't know. Let me go address my wonderful dog. We'll take a little pause for editing. I'll be back. Stay nice.
I'm actually getting bogged down in some detail about shit. And Harlan's like, can we please just move on? No, I mean, what I heard you saying was kind had to do with how do you tell the difference between talking about a quote-unquote law that's always changing or talking about an anarchy that has no laws. Mm-hmm. If the laws are always changing and always with a similar speed or with or whose velocity alterations are themselves not lawfully governed, mm-hmm. then what's the difference between that and chaos? And that is one of the considerations that I think pushes us toward what my interpretation of my society is. I, when I listen to popular scientists, at least, those who reach us plebs through the mass media, because we're not looking at the journals, the academic journals, they, to me, seem very Augustinian in that dichotomy between Plato is saying what's better than the other, or Augustine saying it has been decreed that it is so, and we know it to be a fact. They seem very Augustinian to me, they, that there are laws, and they are fixed and eternal, and we can know what they are, we know what some of them are, and we can learn about the rest, theoretically, and the job of science is to discover these objectively existing, permanent, eternal, fixed laws. I don't know what your perception of the high-level abstraction of science, if that's what they think or not. Well, I, I would say that like, when it comes to your characterization, the you know, scientists like Neil deGrasse Tyson or whatever who are on you know, social media or whatever, talking to the plebs, I think that's just them you know, doing philosophy but pretending not to, do, to be doing it. You know, like they're, doing, they're asking the big questions, trying to address them, and, you know, they have at their disposal some armory of facts or whatever <laughs> that they then can employ to, you know, uh, in the case of someone like Neil deGrasse Tyson, to get more people on the side of science or whatever and that kind of thing. Uh, when it comes to the actual articles that are being written, I mean, obviously they get so damn specific and they're so, you know... <laughs> community driven and those communities are really small those groups of people that care about certain kinds of questions that it's really hard to know you know it almost seems like whatever you know at that point so i just think that what we might want to call it is just philosophy you know just the basic kind of thing and then work from there and you can talk about metaphysics or whatever when scientists most of them probably couldn't talk about this stuff in this way not to say that they all couldn't, obviously, but I think a lot of them probably couldn't. Their their noses are in their microscopes, or in the, you know, or whatever, you know, and it's just they're not going there, you know, in the big kind of direction. They might be too much, or I don't know. Um, if only we could get those who can't do it to stop trying. <laughs> yeah. Well. I, that's another question entirely. Is it's is, you know it's is it is it better than nothing? I mean that our show is it's not nothing, but is their show better than nothing? That's what I want to know. I definitely yeah okay. Short a question for a future short. Yeah, exactly. I do think there are some things that are worse than nothing. 
that are some of these some people. podcasts that are worse than nothing. Yeah, not to name any names. <laughs> we yet. should though. It's just like a whole litany. I mean, just like, and you, Sean Carroll, or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at you. Anyway, got off track. Then, one of the considerations that I have about it from my various positions in skeptical epistemology that one can find by listening to the back catalog (laughs) is if there were those things, if there were Augustinian style, whether they are God decreed or whether they are mere descriptions of the patterned facts, if there were fixed eternal laws of nature, we would never have a right to assert that we had discovered them Right. Because the best we could do through our empirical sciences is describe what we've seen so far. And there are unknowable, indeterminate, indefinite number of possible explanations for any given set of facts. And that's when you get into the whole mathematical style, whiteheadian speculative philosophy game where take any data set, you can come up with an infinite number of explanations for why the data turned out that way. And then when you select amongst those, you do so for reasons of value, Nietzsche. And it all comes back to what matters to you guys. What's relevant? What do you value? What do you care about? And then you choose one that you like, that works for you. But you could never provide an argument, as far as I can tell, I've never seen one, that shows you've discovered the the truth of the matter, that you have found a law of nature. I don't know. Or that you have the objective method to do that. Right? I mean, that would be more or less more in the... That would be the same thing, essentially, right? To be able to say, like, well, my instrument is purely objective. And so since it's so objective, it will detect... Since whatever it's constructed to detect, it will detect it absolutely or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like saying more or less the same thing in a way to say that you access some little... Yeah, how do you know crumb. your instrument flawlessly detects and reports and is interpreted by you right. as saying that which is true? Or that there were, were not a certain set of decisions made either by a single individual or a committee of people who are trying to answer certain questions. The other thing is that it's just, there's often, I'm sure, tons of politics. And we've this is calling back to other episodes, like the philosophy versus science one, where it's the, who are you in, who are you deferring to, you know? And uh, the philosophers love to, to pull up the ancients and the scientists pull up their elders, you know, Mm. and elders can have a big say in what is done, you know, what will be studied and what will not be studied, you know, and will have a big influence on where the money goes. And I think that probably applies even to the 1800s as much as it does to the 2100s, whenever that'll be in a little while. Anyway, will uh, you be around to see it? <laughs> Not if the climate change episode is accurate, or if you're a millennial. Apparently, they're gonna. There's a study that came out that they're like millennials will more likely die of like 
uh, drug over drug overdoses, suicide, and homicide than they will of like heart disease and cancer. <laughs> oh, if they even make it past the vape lung, <laughs> they're all gonna die from their vapes first. So crazy. Uh, anyway, um, so if you do an armchair etymological semantic game with what how we use the word law or the concept of law you've got again this sort of dichotomous thing that whitehead was saying is between plato and augustine or whatever but you've got law as divine command which is the eternal fixed objective stuff versus law as a sort of you know america style pseudo democratic legislative system that's always in flux and is able to evolve and change depending on who is in the chamber today and how the judges interpret the text. Well, yeah, and, there's you know, a ton of that, right? So, law, just in that sense, you know, just taking that yeah. word and looking at what how it can be used, it can be both. And with Whitehead's four things, I think the judicial style is like one and four. It's a mixture of the imminent and the the convention. Mm-hmm. It is whatever the legislator says it is. That's the imminent component, and it's conventional in that it could change tomorrow. It can be whatever it is. You could have 12 different types. I don't know. On Earth 2019, we probably have 300 different types. Well, yeah. I mean, it definitely has that almost mimetic quality to it where, I mean, politicians are easily under the sway of whatever the trends are in you know the culture at the time because they want to stay relevant to the voter base or whatever if you're in a democracy (laughs) you know uh quote-unquote democracy anyway but um certainly that that plays into it as well and maybe it just stabilizes for a week in that way but you know whatever the objects want to remain and whatever the position is that they're in objects being politicians or legislators or whatever they want to keep whatever their motivations are they want to keep that going Mm -hmm. and so maybe the relations will change you know on the one hand you could be lindsey graham saying oh god damn this russian stuff and all of a sudden who knows what the relation was or the other objects were that changed his mind but now he's just like pro-trump you know whereas before he was very concerned about trump and the whole russia thing Sorry, somehow we got onto American politics, but I'm trying to make it relatable to the idea of like things changing in the imminent way. Just because. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's what I'm. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. And then the other, the two and three are the more Augustinian divine command style. Mm-hmm. They are what they are, and our job is to try to figure them out. That we're they're imposed whether by nature or by some kind of deity, and that we need to describe them through this activity of science and scientific philosophy. So you're more in the truth-seeking realm. Yeah, that's the truth-seeker stuff. You know, to use the Doddler's lexicon, two and three and Harlan's interpretation of Science 2019 is truth-seeking. There are laws, and we need to find them. And then Whitehead's number one and four, and what Harland wishes were the case, is more uh, 
speculative. <laughs> it's more if there are any laws, we don't know if there are. If they are, they might change themselves. And our job is to play along, take a guess, do our best, make informed existential behavioral decisions and strive rather than you know or i think this is also game playing right yeah we, we got to just play the game there's a little bit of engineering in there even though i know you don't <laughs> <clears throat> cold season's coming on so ryan Ooh. do you think there are laws of nature in the augustinian sense in the sense of you know are there fixed eternal objective laws rules fix you know it it goes how it must go deterministic laws i've always gotten a little anxious around that kind of stuff even when i was a kid i mean that was my thing you know i remember keith frankish said something on twitter about like you know Something about, like, when was the first time you thought about the redness of red or whatever? And I remember thinking, like, I never thought about the redness of red. I thought about, like, okay, well, say there's a universe. Well, is there anything beyond that? And if there is something beyond the universe, if the universe has a boundary or margin or whatever, what is it? What is it like? You know, what would that be like? Because the universe, to my eight-year-old mind or whatever at the time, is, is, is insanely immense, apparently. And it gave me anxiety in a way because I'm like, well, I kind of don't really want to know. I'm okay with my little corner <laughs> of the, the, the universe, you know, to an extent. Uh, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, Newton, you know, that quote about the uh, great ocean, you know, he was looking at one shiny pebble or a little seashell all the while the great ocean of truth lay before him or whatever, right? Um you know, and so I just kind of think, uh, when I think about that stuff, I just, I don't know. I mean, luckily I've learned more since my days as an eight-year-old. And one of the things that I remember, I think I've posed this at one time in our discussions of this particular topic. I don't know if we recorded it or not. If it's one of the episodes, if it's in one of the episodes, I don't know. But the whole thing about laws, like I thought somewhere I had read... That it's just a lot of, you know, these things are in vogue or, you know, they're they're fashionable at various times. And I'm a big proponent of at least considering these kinds of things that even in Whitehead's day by that time, it was still in vogue to talk about laws, you know, to talk about, you know, the laws of nature. And everybody was, ta- you know, throwing out, didn't matter what area, what discipline they were in, if they were in some kind of experimental psychology or whatever, back in the, you know, late 1800s, early 1900s, they were all like, hmm, the law of this, the law of that, you know, but, 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 you know, that kind of thing. And I think to some extent that was not just something that was in vogue because it didn't have any cultural relevance, but because it did have some kind of cultural relevance. There was, you know, uh, new countries being formed and, and having to come up with various ways to, you know, what are the what are the laws going to be that are different than our, you know, um, you know, fatherland or whatever, <clears throat> the motherland. Anyway, and so I I kind of think that that's maybe to some extent 
where some of this comes from and has just continued to hang on because well, we still have a legal system in our societies and, and you know what I mean? We still use it in our practical everyday lives. So maybe that's part of the reason why these types of analogies or whatever stick around. But, you know, I, I have mentioned before, you know, the notion we were talking, this was not recorded just with whims about like machines and like, Oh yeah, everything's a machine or whatever the fuck we were talking about. And I was thinking, but at times it wasn't, Things weren't considered machines. They were considered other shit. Like they were considered, you know, hydrological pump systems and everything was a hydrological pump system. And then now it's all machines and then it's going to be something else maybe one day or whatever. So I kind of think like, don't these, aren't these things susceptible to our, just our cultural trends, our language that I, I know, <laughs> but you know, that kind of stuff as much as any, you're talking my language. I know, but you know, aren't they susceptible to that? as much as anything, you know, not just simply the tools and techniques that we use or come up with to deal with our questions, but the actual questions may be laden with the actual language we then use to like describe the systems. It's like they're there. It's almost like begging the question, right? It's sort of this thing. Um, not to say that we don't come up with words that are new to describe something we haven't really done before or seen or whatever, but just that in some circumstances that might be kind of prevalent, especially when you are trying to communicate something, you know, what better than to use some kind of mimetic type thing where it's like the laws of nature it's like, holy shit, you know, and you know, there's a, there's a God and he's judge, you know, or whatever, you know, the laws, it sounds very official and very, yeah, I like that analogy between the, I don't know what they call them, governing metaphors or something where at one time the popular technology is a clock or whatever. So everything is a clock, mm-hmm. you know, and then it was a machine and now it's, they say a computer or some kind of information processor. So now everything's a computer yeah, because that's the popular technological device right now. And that's part of why I was getting into the different ways that law kind of means at least these two different styles of thing. The sort of decrees of an absolute authority versus an evolving constitutional uh, body of work that can, a malleable thing. Oh, yes. Okay. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and it, that one can go either way, and then sometimes it does, depending on either your personal intellectual orientation or whatever's popular in your society at the time, and some kind of cultural thing. Well, I mean, it just makes me think about um, the historian of science um, Hasek Chang. He has a number of books out there. One of them, I think, is called "Inventing Temperature." But, you know, one of the the main um, examples he gives that I always remember is about how we kind of, in our textbooks anyway, chemistry textbooks, for instance, or physics, um, just stopped thinking about temperatures and the behavior of, say, water above 100 degrees. It's like we get to this point where we're like, okay, well, at 100 degrees Celsius or whatever the fuck, water boils and that's all we need to know who cares what you know what i mean like that's it that's all that's the benchmark 
your thoughts stop at that point. But like he was talking about how you just keep raising the temperature and the water does all this crazy shit afterwards. It just keeps like, you know, it has like moments where it's like very placid. And then as you continue to raise the temperature, it has these explosive events where it's just like water comes flying out of the beaker or whatever, you know, like, and I think about like, uh, you know, when we get comfortable with these things, with these ways of talking about nature and all that, whatever, then yeah, I think we can become kind of complacent and feel like, yeah, we figure that out, you know, that kind of thing. And then it's, it's, it's very possible that we're going to be surprised. You know, I think that's all Thomas Kuhn's work has been, which I think was a big influence on someone like Hasek Chang, where they're just like, yeah, there's a lot of things that can happen. And in these circumstances, it looks like this model uh, is really good because you don't have any of this additional other information that, you know, uh, can change how you look at the world or whatever. Anyway, those are just some of the things I was thinking of when you when you talk about. That's an interesting point to me to add. And it comes again to me, the way I talk about it, back to how everything is conditioned by your projects and concerns. Yeah. That we, that someone could, if they wanted to, posit as a law of nature, water boils at 100 degrees Celsius at sea level on Earth or whatever. Right. But then someone who looks more closely could say, well, that's an arbitrary distinction that you're making between water in state A and state B. But there are more states. Like, within what you call boiling are all sorts of other state change, phase change, pattern change things Mm -hmm. that you lump all into boiling. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's stiller, sometimes it's explosive. So that if you had another system... You could say, well, yeah, it boils at 100, but then at 105, it roils, right. and at 110, it doubles still. You, know, you can make up a whole bunch of more categories, abstractions, and lump it into, you know, you could have another system. Mm-hmm. And the whole Kuhnian, Foucaultian, Rorschian historicism <laughs> stuff, I think, is just so important and neglected by too many people that it's an accident that we care more about what we call a boiling than we care about these subsequent above a hundred behavioral shifts in water behavior, right. the way water acts. Well, I mean. Yeah, I mean, like, I don't know what the specs are on the electric range top of your stove, but, like, I'm guessing they're probably somewhere around getting up to 100, you know, <laughs> and, like, and that's probably it. They probably, for lots of reasons, insurance reasons, you know, whatever, they don't go beyond that. There's no need to. They can boil your water just fine. And so, but... In that sense, we're kind of surrounded by and all of these various conditions that we don't need to then even question it. So it finds its way into all of our devices, whether they're linguistic devices or they're actual, like, you know, hardware kinds of devices. Um, I can see one being easily able to slip into the notion that, yes, there are laws. I went to the museum 
I went to the planetarium. They said this. They, you know, <laughs> damn it, that's what it is, you know. And I don't have to think about it, which is fine. I totally get that. I sometimes there's a lot of ways. Like I watch lots of like historical dramas, and I'm like, who knows how that really happened? Doesn't matter. I just want to tune out. And for some people, maybe learning about just what has come, you know, people scientists have come to learn about the world is enough. Maybe that's for some people their escapism. I I don't know. That's a maybe another thing entirely, but. Uh, it's not for me. It's, it's real, it's like hard work, you know, but for some people it might be fun to just, you know, you go to the museum, oh, the dinosaur bones and the fucking planetarium and you learn the facts and you, you know, you've got the value for the dollar you spent or whatever. So not only is historic, you know, his, history of science important or philosophy of science, but I think the sociology as well, all the various cultural and social components that come into play to decide why, like when we talk about the divine type, you know, type two or whatever, I mean, that's got to be a huge component is the social, you know, where people come up with this sort of laws of nature. I mean, fuck, it's already in Moses. He's got his damn commandments, you know, it's like thou shalt not, you know, or whatever, you know, thou shalt not Thou shalt boil at 100 degrees. (laughs) Exactly. Thou shalt not break the speed of light. It it really impresses uh, upon people. And now I'm starting to get a little, I don't know, paranoid or conspiratorial. Oh, good. It's working. (laughs) No, that people would be like, if I call this shit a law, people will take me more seriously or they will not question me so readily it's like and they will be more in awe of me if they consider me correct it is like intellectual antacid or something it's like the thing that could corrode your idea you're gonna drop in the base before you even get there you're just like it's a law and everyone's like shit holy crap don't question it you know like so you're like minimizing before you even have an opportunity to you really have your idea taken to task or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's, I know. I said I was paranoid and conspiratorial. That no, some I, people I, would... I'm in that camp already. <laughs> oh, am I? Am, this is our usual situation where I like bungle through the back door of the hut and you're already there with a huge long beard and like warming your hands by the fire like fucking Yoda or something. Yeah, I've got cider for you. <laughs> it's ready. You've got like worm soup. So, all right, what do you think of this as a position that, you know, is there reasonableness here or not? If there were fixed, eternal, absolute laws of nature, we would never have the right to claim that we've discovered them in a similar analogous argument style to how we do enemy skepticism and whatnot. Like, sure. Maybe there is a truth, but if there were, we don't know when we found it. Right. Maybe there are Augustinian laws, but if there were, we could never know that we found them. So our official position on Whitehead's 2-3 style laws are agnosticism. I don't know if there's any of those. If they were there, I couldn't find them anyway. And that 
something more like a, you know, Whitehead's one and four, an in, imminent conventional law game is what we're playing, more like American politics. You know, there mm-hmm. might be currently certain things that are illegal in a given place and time for a reason, and you can point to the statute and you can get someone convicted in a court of law, but that, you know, if there's any absolute fact of the matter, did they break the law or do something wrong or what? It, you know, those things are all, we don't need any of those to play the legislation game. And in philosophy slash science, that's what we ought to concentrate on. It does appear that we are in a non-chaotic universe in the sense that there's at least some patterns and regularities. Mm-hmm. Maybe the there are laws in that sense and maybe they evolve and maybe whatever. And we need to do our Sheldrake episode because I think this is in large part what he claims and I would say why he has been moved to the fringe. Sure. Um, oh, right. We could use this Whiteheadian framework to then jump off. Yeah. yeah. It's happening before your very ears, people. <laughs> so then, as usual, the, or at least a, if not the, interesting question is sort of semantic. Should we even call those things laws? Or should we give the term laws to the Augustinians and just say, we're not going to talk about laws? We're, not gonna We're talk just going to talk about patterns or something Shit, else, yeah. something less. Please, that's what I would kind of like to do. Yeah, I think okay, that would you're be on better. Board. Yeah, and I think that a lot of people at this point, at least this state in science, and I'm guessing philosophy, that if anyone were to right now be like, it's the law of consciousness or something like that, even those people who are like, yeah, I mean, I'm all about consciousness. The redness of red, they would be like, hold on a minute. I just don't think it's in vogue as much anymore in the way that new ones are coming up. That people are like, oh, this is a new law for you. You know, like, I don't think people are buying it. They'll buy the old laws because, I don't know, because. Because of lots of things we've talked about tonight. But I don't know. Because I learned it in seventh grade. Right. F equals MA, and that's a law, and that's what it is. Second law of thermodynamics, bitch. You know, all that kind but of stuff. But it's just, that is a psychological problem, a cultural problem, that people are happy to run around confidently asserting that which they learned in the right developmental stage. But that doesn't mean it's right. a law. But I would say today... It's a similar thing about, like, if anyone was to come up with new laws, I don't think culturally, socially, that would be acceptable either. Because now people are like, I'm getting smart. You know, you and all your non-repeatable psychology studies, eh, you know. it's And also, there's a ton of people, I, I mean, I don't know what the numbers are, but my guess is that there are more people... I don't know. If learning is practice, then there are more people practicing these things today than there were in the mid-1800s. That's philosophy and science, is what I'm trying to say. There are more people engaging with that 
on the level that we of discussion, not just on the level of like, oh, it's a technology, or I'm curious about whether or not there is a god. None of that shit. Just like actually engaging with texts and uh, with various forms of media. YouTube is a huge source of people being able to absorb lectures and you know uh, panels where people discuss topics and all that kind of stuff. I think that's more prevalent today than it was in the past. Not to say that people weren't hungry for it then, just to say that the people have more access now. And I think that's just, it's word gets around a little bit quicker. And I think people might be to an extent more wary of the um, hesitance that people have towards certainty to an extent. To an extent, not you go being charitable. Uh, not to the way that you are, but to the way that they're told to be. Not our listeners, of course. No, they've been enlightened over, I don't know, like 50-some episodes. No, I thought it was just the screens on their phones were enlightening them. Sorry. Oh, good one. <laughs> but I'm... <laughs> anyway... So, and we can end it there. Yeah, we can end it there. Breaking the wall. All right.